0: Hey everyone, you're now part of the B2B Power Hour and
1: I'm your host, Nicholas Thickett. I'm Morgan Smith. We help sales professionals power up their sales skills from first touch to revenue, one hour at a time.
0: Join us for weekly live shows and interviews with industry experts breaking down what
1: works and what doesn't in the remote sales era. Now, on to today's episode. Today, we're talking about How to build pipeline on LinkedIn without a personal brand. And the inciting incident of this is that we've been working with sellers and sales teams. And I can tell you like the most common misconception. Well, there's really two things. I think there's two things sellers default to when they start on LinkedIn. They either do the connect and pitch or they start writing content. So the connect and pitch is its own whole other thing. But the content game is under this myth, frankly, that you have to create content in order to build pipeline on LinkedIn. And by extension, and because there's a lot of marketers on LinkedIn, and there's a lot of personal branding people on LinkedIn, you have to create a personal brand in order to drive pipeline on LinkedIn. Because if you create content, you're going to drive inbound leads, and people are going to see you and you're supposed to position yourself for that through content. And um news breaking today you don't need a personal brand to drive pipeline (laughs) even on behalf of companies uh even if you're not i mean well especially on behalf of companies but even if you work for yourself you really don't need it there's this like oh we got i'm gonna challenge you because i feel like
0: this is the most common thing we get asked Uh, it's either one of two things it's my content isn't working or my spray and pray isn't effective. Mm-hmm. So why don't you need a personal
1: brand? Wow. Well. <laughs> I actually made a post about this this morning, so well-timed. I think we confuse attention for credibility. Ooh, so this is, this is a Venn diagram and there's two circles, attention and credibility. And so, yes, there's overlap, but there's this idea that, oh, all I need is my 10,000 followers. Therefore, I will you know be successful. And the problem with that is just because you have a lot of attention doesn't mean you have a lot of credibility. We all know people who, and you and I, people in the chat, all know people with 20,000, 50,000 followers out on LinkedIn that don't have a lot of engagement. And when they post something, they don't get a lot of activity. So it's this like misconception like this is the way you build pipeline is by building an audience and then driving inbound from that audience. That is not true. We have spent the last year disproving this, actually. (laughs) And today we're going to be talking through some of the high, not necessarily high level, we're always getting tactical around here, but a lot of the points about how to actually do this without necessarily investing in building a personal brand. Because credibility, instead of attention, credibility comes from consistency, from generosity, from trust building, from value delivery. All of the fundamentals that take a lot of time, supposedly, are what actually drives pipeline off of LinkedIn. And so yeah, there's a little overlap with attention and sure if you have a lot of followers it helps you build credibility and for some people. But you can have a lot of followers and still send really bad pitches or like do outbound in a or way have that no t- inbound or have no inbound or like piss off buyers because you're not treating them with respect or you're not enhancing your credibility in the day, you know? I got a Melissa just nailed it. Oh, yes, Melissa has a great comment. You don't need a brand to participate in conversations. If you could
0: go in, like a sneak peek of the reality, that is it. Damn right, that's it. So, but think, but Morgan, but let's let's dive into that. Think about yeah, it. Yeah, like, yeah. Yep. So, when we were selling years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, they didn't have personal brands, did they? No. <laughs> some did. I will say, some of the top sellers, even when I was a road warrior, they would basically slowly get themselves into the community. So they would get into the chamber of commerce, or they would donate to key causes, or they would support key causes. And so they were trusted in a way that they were seen all the time, which then, you know, trust through association, because the right people were associating with them and vice versa. They had credibility when they went to that town. They had credibility when they wanted to support a cause or when they reached out. That's about the closest thing we had to personal brand. It's like if you watch a lot of old movies, they talk about, Why they ask your last name? Because a last name was a status. A last name was a personal brand. And when you were a craftsman, it was your
1: namesake. Or royalty for that matter, you know? All different kinds of status games that you could play. It's a good point. And I think we've seen this shift. I think what we're adjusting to, and this is part of our thesis at Aligned, is that there's this shift back to the personal, but in a digital world. So we had this like brief interim. When I started designing websites in 2009, there was this promise that you could basically automate your inbound engine. If you produced good enough content, if you had a good enough brand, if you had enough content, you optimized for SEO, you built up your organic traffic, whatever, you could automate your business. And that worked for some people. But then when everybody got on the chain, it created a really noisy world and people stopped paying attention to all of the emails and the webinars and the pitches and everything else that, I mean, no offense, but essentially HubSpot promised us could be you know the reality for our companies. And so we've seen this shift, mostly as a result of the pandemic, back to the personal, back to the individual, but in a digital setting. And Melissa perfectly previewed this, which is everything about building pipeline on LinkedIn comes back to you as the individual. It is all about you. You are no longer an anonymous seller. In our framework, we start with P or profile. So your profile is your landing page when you're engaging out on LinkedIn, right? Everything drives back to your profile. Now, this is actually an advantage, and I don't think enough sellers think about this, which is if you're no longer anonymous and your name and your photo is attached to everything, that's a huge advantage. Because if you send an email now, for example, after engaging with somebody on LinkedIn, It's like meeting somebody at a networking event and having an impression left. They won't remember everything about you, but they will remember your name and your face. Or they'll be like, oh, yeah, I kind of, who was that person we were talking to? That's right, Nick. Yeah, I remember Nick. And then Nick lands in your inbox and is like, oh, this is great. So you're no longer an anonymous seller. Everything comes back to your profile and your profile needs to be in shape to support your activities. And we've done a bunch of content. You can look at the B2B Power Hour YouTube channel about optimizing your profile, but basically it's past the three-second test, give somebody a reason to scroll down on your profile, have some links, some calls to action, and tell a story. Give them a reason to get to know you, not just your company that you sell for.
0: And this is so critical, because when you're starting with trust and credibility, your discovery can go so much deeper. Because instead of you starting here, and you're trying to go and prove that credibility, you're already jumping up to here. So you're getting to that next level of questions. Think of what that does to the sales cycle and your ability to impact that buying decision and actually inspire change.
1: Exactly. It's a big
0: big difference.
1: It's huge. Well, and you know, the other thing I think about is like, I think we overthink engaging on social with buyers. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) and it's not a bad thing to try and, you know, be professional or or try and communicate something in a meaningful way. But we overthink it. We're just people. we just, let's have a good conversation. Like, that's well, all I mean, that it is. We're a
0: leading provider of X, Y, and Z. <laughs> and oh, a, you no. know, and an expert.
1: <laughs> oh, the me, me, me pitch. Anyways, so... The reason that you don't need a personal brand to do any of this is that you're not actually trying to build attention, you're trying to build credibility. And so just a couple of fundamental credibility points here, you do need more than 500 connections, just like continue to network and engage. If you don't have that 500 connection mark yet, you know, work on it. You don't need to turn on creator mode and have followers or anything like that. You just need that 500 plus on your profile. And Uh, You should have some if you have experience or if even if you're early in your career, like have that complete profile. People are going to try and categorize you. They're going to try and say, is this somebody to pay attention to or not? And so you want to have at least like, yeah, I went to school here. And yes, I worked these jobs. Even if there's no like description there, they just want to know you're more than just a bot, right? Safe has a great comment. Start by adding everyone at your current company. Great tip. Amen. That's a great place to start. So
0: And all your past customers that you've worked with. Especially the ones that you like.
1: <laughs> but
0: seriously, But <laughs> you think about that, they're the ones that'll go to bat for you. They're the ones that end up being that community in the comments. And as Melissa hinted to is like, so how do you network in person? Think about who you networked with in person and bring that to digital. And then just all you're doing is what we used to do. I don't know why it changed to be so transactional.
1: It. Yeah. So as we get into the rest of this framework, and I have a summary acronym at the end, but Nick, can we talk about the mistakes sellers make and how we talk about like reverse social selling? Where do most sellers start, and then where should they start?
0: This has been really interesting. So we've been working with different sales teams, and the most common thing, the number one thing we get asked, is account-based and messaging it into get like together. And they're like, "Yeah, well, we want to break into this account. So what did you do? Well, I spam them. I mean, uh, their <laughs> their words are messaging." but it's, they send them generic pitches and they just try to force themselves in. But it's backwards. And the reality is trust is communicated in the way that we interact. And when we sell ourselves short, we default to easy, which is the lowest level of trust. If I Even if I pitch Morgan and I've done my research and I nail my problem statement and that language resonates, he still has to do his research or he still has to go and build that credibility in his head to go and see me as an expert or see me as somebody worth listening to. The next level is conversational. Do we know someone mutually? Are we part of the same groups? Are we commenting on the same people and we keep seeing each other in the comments so we're a recognized name or had conversations on a regular basis? That's that's kind of in the in-between because they don't know you that well, but they've seen you, they recognize you. But the number one thing, and it's funny that it just doesn't get talked about, is introductions and referrals. The only way that I've been able to break into accounts that I had no business getting into was looking at people that I understood, like other sellers, and poking at what I know is usually a problem and getting enough information to empower them to introduce me to others. An introduction is powerful, but when we're doing that on social, it's on steroids because we don't even necessarily have to ask for the introduction because Morgan did this beautiful thing, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, about scoring... Trust. Oh, yeah,
1: this is next.
0: (laughs) And when you tap into that, and you understand how trust is communicated through the nonverbals and through text and interactions, you don't need to spam, you don't Mm -hmm. need to do volume, you should be doing enough. I will say quality doesn't mean you're doing like one or two a day, Mm -hmm. necessarily, there is a threshold, but they're doing it backwards. They're not starting with credibility, they're not showing up in a way that's meaningful. And they're trying to force themselves in instead of using the medium for what it's really good at.
1: And I think at a very specific level, the thing that's always confused me and we get this question a lot, which is like, well, what if my ICP persona isn't active on LinkedIn, especially in a specific account? And my question back is always like, okay, well, who is active on LinkedIn at that account? Nobody? Okay, well, maybe then you need a different channel, right? So the, <laughs> I, I just to be straightforward, oh, the reality is... And to take Nick's levels of trust, if the lowest level of trust is just pitching, medium level is ongoing conversations and highest level is an introduction or referral. Map that onto your accounts. And this is an exercise we do with sales teams. So this is a nugget I don't think we've talked about publicly before. Tier one, tier two, tier three. Think about it this way. Tier one are accounts who are actively posting Content, not just resharing stuff, but like they're creating content. They're going to be a very small number of people on the platform. And chances, you will be very lucky if you have any tier one leads in the account that you're trying to break into. Tier two are comments, commenters, engagers, likers, and resharers. People who are active on the platform, right? Who are engaging and doing stuff, but they aren't creating original content. Everybody has their own favorite number, but that's going to be like nine to 10% of users. That's fairly common. You will usually have a lot of tier twos in an account. But the biggest chunk you're going to have are tier threes, lurkers, people who have a profile. They may even have LinkedIn premium or LinkedIn sales navigator, but they don't engage and they don't post content. So they just have a profile. And the mistake we make consistently is we start going direct To all of those profiles, tier one, two, three, all at once. So now think about the levels of trust, okay? So you have level one, two, three levels of trust, high trust, medium trust, low trust. Now you have tier one, two, and three. How about let's map these together? Can you find, can you map the account? You can use LinkedIn sales navigator for this. You create a lead list of the 10 to 20 people at the account or the 10 to 20 main people at the account. You create a lead list of those people and then you use the notes function and you say tier one, tier two, tier three in those notes. So you actually map out the account and you say, this person's actively posting content tier two, this person reshares stuff and comments every once in a while. This person is a tier two. He's just a commenter. This person is a tier three. They lurk. They don't do anything at all. Now, as you think about the levels of trust, you can route into the account based on who's active. And this is where sellers I see get tripped up all the time is because we're so used to the direct. We're so used to, I sell to, I mean, well, we sell the VPs of sales or SVPs of sales. So I'm going to go directly to the SVP of sales. I'm going to send that direct outreach email. I'm going to call them. I'm going to send the connect and pitch or whatever. When in reality, the HR director at that company is super active on LinkedIn. And I, she's a tier one. And so I go to the tier one HR director and I start having conversations in the comments. I start commenting on all her stuff. I send her a message. I go, oh my gosh, your post reminded me of this article I read the other week. Have you seen it? Kickstart a conversation. Keep that going. Eventually, and Safe had commented this talk about vampire selling. If you obey the vampire sales rule, which we'll explain in a second, all you're trying to get to is the point in which she the the person you're the tier one lead you're trying to lean on goes, what do you do? And have a conversation and get them to introduce you to the right person inside the account.
0: I have to share a story. Yeah. So we had a buyer that had experienced us doing this Mm, mm -hmm. and we were in no rush Mm -mm. because we knew that we wanted to get on their radar, but we weren't sure where they were in their buyer's journey. We just wanted to get on on their radar. And so we kept commenting and we kept adding value. We kept getting ourselves in the circle. They were people that we wanted to interact with because they were genuinely good people. So we had picked who we wanted to talk to because we wanted to know them. And then next we know the director's talking to us and then the VP's talking to us. And he's like, why is everybody talking about you guys? We need to have coffee.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh (laughs) uh-huh.
0: It's really interesting because if you think about inspiring change, we always talk about like the different viewpoints, right? Of like, so of all, all the people in the buying committee, what is their view on what you're selling? Well, are you are you kind of cheating the system when they all go and sell it internally to the one person that signs off on the PL? Yeah, like we've had deals that should have closed in sixty days that closed in less than seven. Oh yeah, because of this. And to be completely honest, this was a happy accident. This is one of our experiments that went very well. <laughs> but to be honest, like there's a lot of stuff we've done that we tried for you guys that just failed miserably. But this is this is the switch that you need to have on social. When Morgan's saying like indirect first and then shift to direct, this is when you're writing your sequences if you feel the need to actually do a sequence. Do the direct later in the sequence so you butter them up, that they trust you, that they want to talk to you. Whether that's a week or two weeks, the reality is you should be able to start enough meaningful conversations in one week to know if you're gonna be able to route in quickly doesn't mean that you're going to go and sell to them right away. No. But it means that you've shifted now to meetings. So you've shifted to another medium that is better for them so that you can have a, a live discussion. And that's, that's the switch, right?
1: Yeah. And don't forget too that back to the you're not an anonymous seller principle anymore, right? If you're not an anonymous seller and you've been warming up accounts, what would happen to the tier one or tier two that you've been engaging with or the person that you've been warming up if you sent them an email? even if they're not your ICP persona? And what if you had engaged with them for 30 days and then you sent them an email? We have this graphic that gets shared out every once in a while. And it's this idea that the time from first touch to closed one is gonna be some set amount of time, all right? It might differ depending upon the exact company you're trying to sell to, but if you averaged out your CRM, it's gonna look like a chunk. And the question is, when does that deal enter pipeline? And in traditional sales, that deal enter pipeline really pretty quickly because you send a well-formulated email or you have a call or whatever, and they go, yeah, I'm interested. And you have a second call, a qualification call, discovery call, and go, oh, yeah, this could actually be a really good fit. And then they become a qualified deal in pipeline. And then guess what? You have to do all the credibility work anyways. You have to do all the credibility work anyways. That's, That's the part of selling. So then the distance from qualified pipeline to closed one is actually fairly long. So think about social this way. You're lengthening the amount of time from first touch to qualified. There's more time from the first time you interact from somebody to the point that they actually come into your CRM. But there's going to be a lot less time in that deal coming to a close because you've done all of your credibility work already.
0: But the funny part about this is whenever like sales managers used to ask us, like, so what, what new opportunities have? What's in pipeline? Yeah, in all fairness, when I was younger, <laughs> half of what I said was bullshit. Mm. And I guarantee <laughs> you, we all do this just to go and Wait, a
1: seller saying something
0: bullshit? What? <laughs> I know, right? Well, yeah, I th- th- they're a brand new opportunity. Oh, really? Uh, what about them? And you're like, I don't know. I just put them on my list, but I <laughs> haven't actually <laughs> talked to them. But, yeah. this, but this is the reality of what's, what's going on with sales, right? But when you take this approach and reverse it, it accelerates the part that we want to accelerate, and it allows us to scale the part that doesn't scale that well. And like Melissa said, it doesn't necessarily have to be just LinkedIn. If they're more active on Twitter, you can do this on Twitter. If they're more active on YouTube or TikTok, this works there because it's just
1: how we naturally communicate. That's why this works. And I think the thing that really accelerates success. So think about it this way: if if step one, if phase one is sort of tearing out and figuring out your strategy, what we would call your contact strategy, and this is what a lot of people don't do when they start engaging on social, they just engage with anyone, and then they run pray and spray campaigns to anybody who has a profile on LinkedIn. Then what happens when you upgrade your approach is you shift you start to shift and become even more strategic and more intentional. Now, strictly speaking, when you actually do this whole thing together, you start with this kind of work first. You don't start with a contact strategy. But the contact strategy is a lot more tactical, and it might give you some some little yum yum, you know, little nice snack of success, uh, which we see a lot when somebody becomes tearing out an account and starts engaging and looking for that referral, they see some pretty quick wins. It's low-hanging fruit, basically. So, the strategy piece though, the way to uh, continue accelerating your success is to become very intentional about your research, your observations, your insights, and your triggers. okay so those are four things: research observation, insights and triggers and what you're doing in that is you are taking your knowledge of the industry, your overall sense of uh, your problem knowledge and prospect knowledge so what problem your company actually solves, what your prospects actually need, right? What your How your prospects talk about the problem. We, we generally group that into this bucket called industry context, okay? You take all of that and then you inform four things, your research, your observation, your insights, and your triggers. And we don't have the time to like dive super deep onto each of these uh, today, but I want to provide like a solid summary. So, Research is figuring out which accounts are the right accounts to go after. And within that account, who are the right people to talk to? The trigger is the reason you're reaching out today versus 60 days from now. And we'll dive into each of these in a second. So there has to be a reason. If As you shift from indirect into direct, or as you begin to target which accounts and which accounts you're going after and tearing out. There has to be a reason you're focusing on them today versus 60 days from now. If you don't have that reason, your outreach is not going to be compelling. Because it then just turns into, look how great we are, me, 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 wow, we have a great product, you should spend money with us. And oftentimes that's because they have money, right? Because they use uh, funding round as a trigger or something like that. And that's not good enough. (laughs) We need a deeper set of triggers here, events that determine why you're reaching out to them. Your insight is connecting the dots on behalf of your prospect about a problem that you're pretty confident they're experiencing, but they don't understand why they're experiencing it. Or alternatively, they've settled for the status quo and your insight is helping them change their perspective on that status quo.
0: They, once they know, they can't unknow. It's one of those things that you're, it sticks in the back of your brain because you just never naturally connected the dots. And once you've somebody's connected to them for you, you sit there and you go, oh. it's like the difference between dial-up and Wi-Fi now.
1: Right. Those like, that
0: hear that dial-up tone, it gives them like PTSD. And,
1: <laughs> oh God, it's such a PTSD. Hang the <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> ah. Same thing. Once you know, you appreciate what you have so much more because now we've changed to something better.
1: Yeah. And your observation is an observation about the account. It actually comes to some of your messaging. So the reason that, These things are important before you get started as a way to upgrade the way you're building pipeline. Is because if you're actually spending this upfront work and you know your time to pipeline is going to be longer, this upfront work is worth it because now you're not just going to engage with anybody and you're not just going to tell them anything, right? You have a thing in the back of your head it's rarely ever the first conversation you have with somebody, but you have an idea in the back of your head that let's use our consulting arm for an example. But let's say aligned was a very different company and was a lot bigger that aligned just went through a sales enablement higher. That's a trigger because it indicates they're investing in some function and their sales department is still growing, which is great. So, okay, that's some additional data. Our context of the problem and the prospect is that oftentimes companies that are hiring sales enablement managers and continue to have growing sales teams are struggling internally to onboard effectively, to ramp effectively, to keep the pipeline growing, basically. And so the problem is they're not experiencing pipeline lift. They're continuing to hire, but there's some mismatch between the training or the opportunities or whatever else that they're trying to solve for
0: narrative. This is the narrative that's going through their head. This is the story that either
1: they tell themselves or is being told about them. Mm -hmm. And then I can take that knowledge, come to an insight. And this insight is probably is applicable to multiple accounts across those same triggers across that same research. And I say, okay, well, there are five people in this account or six people in this account that I need to get in front of. I'm for sure confident I need to get in front of the VP of sales because that's who we sell to. I'm pretty confident we need to talk to the sales enablement manager, but more for like an account research thing. And they just need to know we exist. They're not really an economic buyer. They're not going to sign off on this. But I definitely need to talk to these three sales directors because these are the things that I'm really focused on. That allows me to map out the account. And then I can take the insight and say, look, when we normally work with other companies who are in the same place as you, we see these things and use this as a part of like the overarching messaging, overarching narrative. And then back to stage one, contact strategy, tiering out those people. Okay, VP of sales, total lurker. This one sales director, tier two. Sales enablement manager, tier two. The other two sales directors, tier threes. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go after those tier twos first, see who's commenting, see if I can engage on that, right? And we'll get to this in a little bit. I'm going to use content to warm up the Lurker account. So I would send blank connection requests with a strong profile to the Lurkers and then use my content to warm them up. And now I have this sequence in which I'm actually breaking into the account based on the level of activity, but using the fundamental account strategy of understanding what's going on inside the account, articulating a useful insight based on triggers and then turning that into observations that come into your messaging. Nick, that was a long soapbox.
0: If somebody can get the acronym before Morgan says it, I'll give you a free 30-minute session to dive into this for you. <laughs> and I'll give you my prospecting cheat sheet for enterprise. It's just a one-pager that with triggers and a few other goodies. So if you get it in the comments before Morgan says it, hopefully he's not a jerk. and says <laughs> saying
1: (laughs) no i don't think i've said it yet today so no yep but honestly nick the trigger game is what changes everything
0: well it's it's just one of so you guys think about it somebody hands you a list of 20 accounts we've all been there every company i've worked for has done that marketing went and did a really basic search you're like well our tam that i would like to work with that we've never had success in but would like to go and work with because we magically are qualified I want this vertical at this headcount at this geography, at this revenue. That's my box that I've painted. That's my 20 accounts miscellaneously just handed to me. Who do you start with? Mm-hmm. Why? That was the biggest game changer for me. It also made my lists a lot more fun, but yeah. <laughs> what is the context? What is the real reason that you're reaching out? What is worth the interruption? And so what we realized as we were going through this Is The point of this process is instead of trying to win on the phone and focusing all on miscellaneous messaging and cheap tricks and different frameworks to kind of win through conversation, interrupt them and hope they want to play ball, it's how do you win before the call? So when you get on the call, you start with momentum. That was the experiment. My goodness, did it take a long time to figure
1: out. I think the other thing that always surprised me, and this is just a great little personal story, Nick, is you never had to run 17 email sequences. You never had to do some 13 touch point thing. You never had 27 touch points to try and freaking break into an account. And we see that so often with sellers, right?
0: I often thought that was just because of my ADHD, I'd forget,
1: but <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you'd forget to set up the sequencer or whatever.
0: <laughs> I would only use a sequencer if I validated an hierarchy of information. So if I knew there was a natural conversational flow and that's just the way it always worked. So I'd go through my emails and I'd look at, how did that go? What were the key pieces? I would reverse engineer it and sometimes I would do it. But the success rate on that was so low because the conversation usually changed so much. So yeah, you can and yeah, it worked. But the thing is I can only scale that through tech. I can't scale that through people. If I use social, if I use dark social, if I use places where people are gathered together to get entertained and educated. When I put that out in the world, not one person seeing it. I get access to so many people. And the thing that I think is so brilliant that Morgan did is when he did his tiering, only 1% of people are creators, that tier one. Yeah. Depending on who you ask. 9% of people are engagers on any social platform. And the bulk, the 90% of those tier three, mm-hmm. that just lurk. They just want to see from afar. Mm-hmm. And so what Morgan's saying let's start with the 10% or less to get access to the full 100. So it's that lever that you're pulling to have that unfair advantage as a seller to work smart, not hard, and then shift after if it's not working. Nobody says you have to sit and do this for six months. (laughs) Morgan, like most of the time, if this doesn't work in seven days, then I shift.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, this is a really quick that comes to the last part of this framework. So the middle part of this framework, which Nick is just perfectly segueing into, is audience and content. So we've done profile and then safe, helpfully commented research observations and then insights and triggers. What usually happens after research and observations, if you're doing your account research properly and you're doing your list building properly, is now you have an audience. Because chances are you're never tasked with just going after one account, right? No seller is just given one account to go after. So even if you only have 20 accounts. Did you
0: mention the CAC on that?
1: <laughs> the CAC on what? I mean, those have got to be some transformative deals that you're selling if you're only doing one account. you
0: sell to? Microsoft?
1: Okay. Yeah, Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So what happens after your research, and particularly your observation phase, what you're noticing, you're mapping out in every account the five to ten people that you need to get in front of. If you have 50 accounts that you're going after, Now you have 500, up to 500 different leads, right? And now you know tier one, two, and three from each of those accounts. So what you can do, and this is a little sales nav pro tip, is you can create a lead list by persona. So across all the different accounts, here are the sales directors I'm going after. Across all the different accounts, here are the M&A advisors I'm going after, or whoever you sell into, right? And then that's audience, comes content. And this is how you get in front of the lurkers. And this is why you never start with personal branding, because you didn't do all of this work up front to understand who you're going after, what you've observed about those accounts and insights and triggers. And what happens in content, and then through insights and triggers, you reach validation. Your content and your validation paired together, (laughs) this is such a fun one, is your content becomes a one-to-many nurture sequence. I just want to say that again. Your content is not about building followerships. It's not, it's not about creating a lot of followers. It's not about building your personal brand. No seller needs to do this. Yeah, about
0: a ton of likes.
1: Yeah, who cares about the ton of likes, right? It is about validating content. It is about creating a one-to-many nurture sequence that gets all those tier threes and even the tier twos, but particularly the lurkers, to pay attention to you. And I cannot tell you, The number of sellers we have worked with that have followed this roadmap, that post content, that gets like 10 likes, but then three inbound leads. What the hell, Nick and Morgan? (laughs) We got a message like that the other day. It was so lovely. But because they're not optimizing for attention, they're optimizing for credibility. Even if you post something that only gets 10 likes, you still get, you know, however many thousands of views, right? That you have that little view counter. and if you're running, I mean, this is part of the strategy is what I would recommend is like a blank connection request, only if they're second degree to those five to 10 people inside the account list. So you're building out your network inside this really targeted audience, then you're nurturing your audience over the next 90 days. And instead of posting content to try and, you know, become a big follower or whatever, you have an algorithmically enhanced nurture sequence to deliver your content to the audience.
0: It is your sales enablement platform. Yes. And you guys have probably heard me say this before. Who are the 5 or 10 people in this company that need to know we exist? What specifically do they individually need to know before they'll ask me for a meeting or bio? And what is the best medium to get
1: in front of them in which they'll recognize it? And this comes to that the validation piece. So, everything from profile research, observation, audience content, insights, triggers, you are creating an assumption or a hypothesis you are saying, this is what I think is true, okay? Now, if you have deeper experience in the industry or you have a lot of experience closing deals, your validation is going to be a lot quicker because you know problem knowledge, prospect knowledge. You know these things. But the point of validation is putting out content and seeing what resonates and then using the same insights and triggers that you had previously created to start using on direct messaging to introduce into conversations, particularly with tier two and tier one people to say, hey, have you thought about this? Hey, notice this about your company. Is that true? And that's never the first conversation. Like sequencing this, this is further down. This is after they're warmed up, after you've engaged with those tier twos, having a conversation be like, hey, I just noticed like you hired a sales enablement person is what are your sales directors talking about?
0: There's a tip. If you're VPs or if you're a director, if you're someone that has authority at your company, that's recognized outside of your company, you can jump to that first. Yes, you can. So If you have your VP actually doing proper social selling, they can lead with that curiosity of like, hey, I just saw this. Is it true? Uh Because they have the authority and the credibility in the market to jumpstart that. But the
1: average seller doesn't. Right, and this is why an account executive or an SDR would should never lead with the pitch, because like so what, so what, like what? How do you, <laughs> How do you force sales leaders to be patient? <laughs> Chris's question: <laughs> The moment they are behind on their numbers, they resort to spray and pray. Yeah, it's a good question. The problem
0: with them going into survival mode is a lot of it. A lot of the time, it's artificial, and a lot of it is based on lies. We force sellers to lie about pipeline, which then creates bad forecasting, which means we miss targets. It's a culture thing that we don't feel confident or have the ability to be honest and not get punished for it. And I wish more people would read Todd Capone's Transparent Sales Leader, because it is honestly one of the best books I read. But he talks about that. Why do we need to be a five times pipeline? Because you're stuffing crap in there to justify a metric that doesn't matter. Meetings don't matter. Meetings don't pay bills. Opportunities open with them understanding why change, why now, and why you. I would bet on that. But sales leaders, when they're going to be in survival mode, they'll always push this. So part of it is being transparent of the reality of the situation. And the other part is knowing when to be quick and when not. Some of these triggers, you can go move faster because there's an expiry date on pain, but you can't treat everyone the same. You can't run every single sales play identical just because you have quota. To me, that's unethical and it's selfish. And it's really disappointing that we put the company first. But when we're, oh, I almost said it, <laughs> the <laughs> acronym. But when we change our process up and we're not so fast, then what we can do is we can create credibility and conversations, which I think Morgan will talk about later. And it's, think about it like a if you teach sales leaders to look at prospects like a sports, professional sports team and pipeline like a bench. Who's sitting on the bench and who would you put as your first string, second string, and third string? Why change, why now, why you? The more of those you can answer and the more that they understand or are willing to go to bat for you is what tier they're in. Think about just a different way to look at it.
1: Right, and the other thing I think about is like, what's your average deal cycle? Sure, if you're selling something that's like low five figures, it might be pretty quick. And if you're selling something product led at $50 a month, it's probably pretty quick. But for mo- a lot of B2B sellers, your average deal cycle is not less than 90 days. So a lot of this, a lot of what most of what we're talking about is set on a 90 day challenge. As like Nick's been pointing to, even particularly in larger deals, the 90 day question is not like, how do I close this deal in 90 days? It's how do I get them to ask me for a meeting in 90 days? Think about the power dynamic in that switch. Because instead of you pressuring, I mean, pressuring is probably unfair. That was unfair of me as a marketer, sorry. But like begging somebody, how about to have a meeting with us and like, I don't know, spending gift money or what, however else you're trying to land meetings to break through the noise, you're inverting the power dynamic. You're saying whoever it is is a fairly trusted, incredible person. I need to talk to them about this problem that I'm having. How fast do you think those deals close? And how different do you think that would be from your existing sales cycle? So yeah, you won't see results as quickly. Your CRM is not going to have as many meetings booked in the next 60 days if you're doing this right. But that's because 120 days down, when probably most of your deals are closing anyways, you're going to see a very different pipeline number and the deal speed is going to be very different as well. And the conversations
0: in pipeline are going to be very different because you're going to have more information. You're going to have the ability to multi-thread with the right people that want to listen to you Mm-hmm. It literally changes the whole dynamic, and like Melissa stated right at the top, we have given ourselves the ability to have conversations at scale, and as Morgan has said many times, but with the credibility so they want to listen.
1: Right, and so the last piece uh, between validation, which is like iterative testing, the last piece after that is enable enable your buyers, enable your buyers to buy, and this comes to the vampire sales rule. Nick, do you want to? Do you want me to? Do you want? Yeah, I know, you, I always, you haven't. Oh, yeah. I don't think you've you've <laughs> done this in a while. So. The vampire sales rule is the, uh, uh, in, in folklore, named after uh, the idea of in folklore, vampires were only allowed in your home if they were invited in. So the idea is that you are only allowed to pitch if you are invited to. If you stick to this rule, your entire engagement strategy transforms. Now, I will say, and we've talked about this, there is an exception to this. And the exception to the vampire sales rule is when you are 9,500% confident that the company is going to go end up in a ditch in the next 60 days. And there's a very, this is your trigger, by the way, you're a very urgent reason to reach out, right? Very urgent. Something's going to go horribly wrong. Sure. That's fine. Send that connect, personalization connect request. Think of yourself as like
0: a first responder. Yeah. yeah, You fired up the ambulance
1: (laughs) and you're getting there to stop them. But based on like buying data, only what, 3% of buyers are in market at any one time? So it is likely that it is going to be 3% of your market or less. So everything we talked about is for 97% of your market. So yeah, 3% is fine. You know, you can do it every once in a while. But most of your engagement strategy obeys the vampire sales rule. And the reason that um, we talk about this as buyer enablement is because nobody likes to be pitched on social. So you are helping your buyers By, by, for example, doing discovery in the DMs. Or in the comments. Or in the comments. You're validating these assumptions that you've developed previously. Or you're enabling them by using, for example, some. this is very tactical, using their calendar link instead of yours. Like these little power switches where you're empowering them. You're saying, look, I'm here to help you. What's your calendar link? I'll find a time for us. Or... Somebody's like, hey, can you find that PDF? Yeah, sure, drop it in chat. I've seen this happen before, Nick. I don't know if you've seen this happen before, but somebody will, I, actually this happened to me the other week, which is why I'm frustrated about this, where somebody was like, we were having a decent conversation and then put together this PDF. And I was like, yeah, sure. And they're like, okay, what's your email? And I was like, don't you dare. Okay, here's my email. Let's see what happens. Guess what? I got put in some sequencer. That's not buyer enablement. All I wanted was the PDF. So send me the PDF in chat because if it's good and some of this comes back to like broader go to market top of funnel stuff but like if it's good and your marketing team's doing its job then that PDF is going to prompt a response or I'm going to say thank you and then a week later you can follow up and be like hey did you like the PDF or like did you like this because on page 37 we talked about this and we could you know follow on some other conversation there's another asset guess what drop that one in chat now I'm starting to like learn about the company Right. We're getting these comments of like, ah, I hate that. It's so.
0: And like what Brooklyn said (laughs) yesterday about the bait and switch too. And you're like, you get this promise of this, like, ah like amazing PDF. And then you get it. And it's just like how to buy our product, how our product so amazing. And I'm like, no, no, like this is, this is for (laughs) like customer success and like to help people that have bought utilize it. This isn't selling me on shit other than that you just don't understand what it takes for me to change my mind and want to buy into what you're doing differently because it's a different workflow. Yes. But that is the most frustrating thing. And then you're put into a sequence and you're like, I hate everything about you, spam, block, delete.
1: Because it's, we're so close, right? And you're just trying to help me buy. Think about this, enablement, trying to help me buy better. How can you grease my skates or whatever the expression is so that everything is just smooth sailing to the finish line? Don't make me work. Reeks of commission breath. Hell yeah. Reeks of commission breath. Literally, think about this. If you had to design a buying experience, and this is true on any platform, but it's especially true on social because you're not anonymous and people hate getting pitched and sold on social. So how would you sell me? How should I buy? And how can you design that buying experience so I don't even have to think about it? I'd because be
0: proactive about it, you know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so much easier. So the framework that we had previously laid out is called proactive. Okay. Profile, research, observation, audience, content, triggers, insight, validation, enable. And think and, about it,
0: guys. Mm-hmm. It's it's like the
1: healthy hustle. Yeah. It encourages you to be
0: smart, and if you're doing the hustle, it'll actually get in your way of meaningful progress, and you won't get the compounding. A building, of having those benches,
1: you'll be just stuck spray and pray. Spray and pray. Exactly. So proactive is this framework. And the problem it solves is that sellers think they need to create personal brand. So they invest in content and then they see no leads. They see no results because content's a long game. And they're also writing content to build attention instead of credibility, right? And on the other side, it also helps solve the spray and pray problem, which is that Buyers hate it, first of all. And secondly, sellers send a lot of connect and pitches and don't get any responses to it. So proactive, goodness, can I speak this morning? I don't know. English is a hard language some days. Everything starts with your profile. It all comes back to you. It's got to be dialed in. Your research, your observations is mapping out your industry, mapping out your accounts and who you need to talk to so you can build your audience, which you can create content to on a one-to-many nurture sequence. Then, as you shift from indirect, because you're tearing out your accounts, tier one, people who are super active posting content, they're like 1%. You're lucky if your account has it. Tier twos are those who are actively resharing, engaging, posting, stuff like that. Tier threes are lurkers. That's part of your research phase. Once you've built your audience of all of your tier ones, twos, and threes, then you start creating content for them on a one-to-many nurture sequence. As you shift from that indirect strategy, engaging, warming up, creating content, you shift to direct based on your triggers and insights, based on your understanding of why this account and why now compared to 60 days from now. And the insight that will get their eyebrows, I have bushy eyebrows, so I'm gonna get your eyebrows to go up a little bit, go, oh, who is this person? I didn't know that. That insight that connects the dots, that changes the way that they think, that they can't unknow once they know it. And then all you're doing is you're validating all of your work. You're just going out there and throwing the wet noodle at the wall to see if it's cooked, right? Is it done? I don't know. We've done this before. We've Obviously, we use this framework internally. And I can tell you, we've done research, observation, audience, content, triggers, insights, and it has flopped. (laughs) It didn't go anywhere. Our research was, we went in the wrong direction or, or our triggers weren't exactly right. And so our content was like doing well, but it wasn't doing exactly well. And then when we're doing direct outreach, people were like, why are you pitching me? And that's never what you want to do. Uh, let alone the approach where the conversations weren't all that interesting and we weren't talking to the right people. That's that validation phase. And then enable, make it easy for them to buy.
0: And everyone listening, if you get your sales leadership on this and see how, what role do they play, you look at your managers and look at how they're scoring you. How many conversations are you having on target? How many people in target are you connected to How many people in Target can you DM randomly and they'll respond to you? We need to rethink how we score accounts in order to leverage more modern buying processes. It is a game changer. But also think too, AEs and SDRs. As an AE, how are you empowering SDRs to divide and conquer? Are they focusing on a certain segment? Are they focusing below the power line? How can you guys work together on this to both build credibility in different ways that help them make a better buying decision. And when you do this well, like do this well and you map it out and you work as a team, it's almost like going to court. You have validated real proof that you can handle them. And it's like going to a doctor's office or being a detective, here's your diagnosis. This is why I made it. This is what I did to go and get all these observations. And because of it, this is my prescription. That's hard to ignore.
1: So hard. And that's, and the validation phase is all tactical, right? Like. And if you've attended these shows before, or if you haven't, you should definitely check out the YouTube channel. All of the live shows are there previously. Validation is where all those tactical ones come in. How to use comments to book meetings, because now you've tiered out your accounts. Do you really want to send a pitch to somebody who's posting content every day? No. You want to hop in their comments. You want to warm them up over 30 days. You want to be that person who always shows up that build that credibility. And then you can have a conversation and see if you can get a referral to the right person inside the company, which is where we started today. Or those tier twos, if they're commenting or engaging, who, what influencers do they pay attention to? What resources are they looking at? Could you send them a DM and say, hey, I saw you, um, I hate this uh, outreach, so I'm trying to be really careful not to do what other people are doing. So it's, um, hey, I saw you were uh, engaging with like this research report from Garter. And, uh, oh, the old Beck Holland play. Yeah, and it's like this like credibility through association thing. Apparently people have been using us for this. I got a DM by the way. I don't know. Yeah, I saw. Somebody was like connecting with people like, "Hey, I saw you liked Morgan's post." It's like, "Don't do that." Okay? That's not good stuff. But like, can you kickstart a conversation based on a mutual association, mutual trust, mutual interests? And then can you use content to nurture everybody else? That's the point.
0: And just like Chris just said, When we engage other people and they buy in slowly as we're going and we get to the mythical person that's going to sign off, the person that says, okay, it can go on my budget. You're not going to get magically people showing up to derail you because everybody has aligned at the right time because you proactively built them up to this point.
1: Did you see what he did there? Aligned at the right time? Proactive? Ah, (laughs) somehow we're at the end of the hour it was a good dad joke i liked it
0: oh we're already here okay no sign off
1: thanks everybody to coming to morgan's soapbox power hour and uh uh nick was he had some great insights along the way i didn't mean to dismiss that out of hand (laughs) oh let me say this if you are not yet subscribe to our youtube channel like what are you doing i brought it up a couple of times all of our live shows are there what like come on go check it out it's so much easier to find them it's so much easier if you're like oh my god i missed a linkedin live show go to the b2b power hour youtube it's probably there and if it's not then dm me and i can make it there i think we missed a couple along the way so and the
0: podcast has episodes that we don't have as live shows yes that's true so it's something to go and look at as well and it's 2022 as always it's no longer acceptable to suffer in silence. If you're stressed, depressed, struggling as an SDR, AE, or sales leader, reach out. We would be happy to help you. you don't need to buy anything. We just want to see you succeed and uh, beat the, help, the the hustle culture that almost killed me. So if you need help, get in the comments, shoot either of us a DM, and we'll make sure you get the help you need. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great weekend. Did you love today's episode? Subscribe now to have our three weekly episodes waiting for you.
1: And if you really like our content, please leave a five-star review. But if you're not ready to give us a review, check out another episode and follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to win you over. See you next time. See you next time.